Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario has unveiled a plan it says will make the province more pandemic ready, but some critics feel it's just an election ploy. We'll talk about that. Russia has announced that it will scale back military operations here in Ukraine's capital. This occurred as the outline of possible deal to possibly even end the war and head towards ceasefires. And Canada's federal budget for 2022 is set to be released on April 7th, that's a week from tomorrow, by Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christia Freeland. Moshe Lander, Senior Economist and Lecturer with Concordia University, will talk to us about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots coming out of Queen's Park over the last uh, 24 hours or so to do with the, the Ford government's plan going forward. We know, of course, the election's coming up the first week of June. They're not officially into the campaign right now, but, uh, well, you'd never know it by some of the announcements that are coming in. MPP Pambrit Singh Sakaria, who is the president of the Treasury Board here in Ontario, laid out Ontario's plan to stay open if in case there's another pandemic. Here are his comments. We are doing this by adding 295 postgraduate positions and 160 undergraduate seats to train the next generation of doctors and healthcare professionals across Ontario over the next 10 years. We are creating new financial grant programs for the healthcare sectors and reducing registration barriers for foreign credentialed medical professionals so they can apply their skills here when it's needed most. So that's a, a bit of the plan. And, and of course, that's their take on what's supposed to be happening here. There's a, a number of folks that are pushing back on that because it doesn't seem to be, well, a fit with what the province seems to be doing right now. Lots of other stuff to talk about, uh, some of the other announcements over the last little while. And to, uh, to make some sense of it, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, Allison Smith. Allison, of course, is the founder of Queen's Park today. Uh, Allison, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. No problem. Let's, let's start with the, the announcements about health care which on the surface there, they talked about, you know, more hospital beds, and this is in case there's going to be another pandemic, which, by the way, seems very apropos since uh, Dr. Uni and others say we're into the sixth wave now. But, you know, the first pushback I heard as soon as this announcement was made yesterday was from the Ontario Nurses Association. It says, if you want to retain nurses, uh, rescind the bill that limits our pay increases to 1%, and the government doesn't seem to want to budge on that, do they? Yeah, exactly. They've been holding really, really tough on that bill, uh, which is impacting um, all the healthcare workers in the province um, and all public sector workers in the province and has been for years. Uh, the one thing included in that bill that, that does increase wages is for personal support workers. So those who yeah. work in long term care homes, they've been getting a, a two or three dollar raise um, per hour for months and months now. And the, and the government had kind of been um adding a few months to it at a time and while sort of simultaneously saying it would be permanent um so they actually officialized that yesterday um but yeah you're right that the criticism of this of this plan seems to be that uh you know a lot of it's stuff that's already uh happened or been undertaken throughout the pandemic you know kind of digitizing uh various health services connecting public health units in ways they weren't before funding ppe production in ontario a lot of that's already, uh, you know, been going on. What I think is, you know, if you listen to what the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and, and other business groups have been saying, they really wanted the government to come out with a plan because they want to avoid lockdowns again at all costs. So I think that's sort of who the, who the government was uh, tipping its hat to with this a bit yesterday, as well as trying to um, take control of the narrative, you know, look at all we've done, we're organized, we're prepared, um, emergency preparedness is a priority, and, and we're going to be um, manage this better than, than previous governments did. Because as you know, we had that expired uh, protection equipment on hand uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, and, and lots of stuff not in place to, to tackle something as uh, big as what we've tackled over the past two years. But as, as you've been saying, the criticism here is this is really kind of a regurgitation of stuff that's already in place uh, that's, you know, been the culmination of, I guess, the work they've done over the last couple of years. That doesn't seem to be a whole lot new here. I know they say they're going to create more spaces, and for instance, in medical schools, et cetera. Well, uh, that's that's not going to, you know, help us much until, well, four or five years from now, I guess. And, you know, the, we're, we're concerned about what's going on. So it, it, this is clearly, I mean, this is going to shoot right to the top of the charts when it comes to elections issues, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things clearly the Ford government has been dealing with is, is uh, you know, voters' impressions of how well it's handled the pandemic. Um, because, 
you know, that's obviously top of mind, although a lot less so, I would say, than a year ago. Um, so if they can kind of come out looking like, you know, presenting a, a face of we got through this and we're ready for future problems, then their hope is that, you know, government or voters would take that at face value. And you know what, in some ways, I think that strategy might be right. Like, I think what the opposition parties, you know, wish they could do, and we'll see if they actually go through with this, but they want to, you know, remind voters of the tragedy in long-term care in last year and the year prior. Um, and, and, you know, a bunch of really awful stuff that happened during uh, COVID in, in Ontario. But I think voters don't really want to hear that right now. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we're all ready to, you know, move along and kind of put that, uh, nightmare behind us for lack of a better phrase you know and for good or her, i mean lots of things could be fixed and it was a tragedy but i think the pcs are betting on the fact that voters want good news this spring um and they don't want to they're not going to be you know drawn to necessarily vote for the opposition parties based on on um you know really bad tales from the past years that that everyone kind of hopes to slough off right now well, and to your point, they've started to throw some of the goodies out there too, haven't they? You know, they said you don't need license stickers anymore. And by the way, mm -hmm. when you're in Queens Park Isle later on, Allison, if you see Peter Bethlehem fall, I haven't got my rebate check yet, but me and Mo remind him about that, follow oh. up on that. Uh, <laughs> I but got they've mine increased. Last week, so they're coming. <laughs> ah, well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> uh, if, yeah. If they're doing it alphabetically, though, they skipped over the K's. But anyway. But they did raise the speed limits. I mean, that was a pilot project for a while. People that are driving on the QEW between Hamilton and St. Catharines, of course, were aware of that. But on a number of highways, it's going to be permanent at 110. That's not going to cost them anything per se, is it? Except maybe changing a few signs. But it's one of those things. It's a kind of a feel-good measure, I guess, for a lot of motorists. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, I think everyone was surprised back in 2019 when the, when the PCs first piloted this. They were kind of like, uh why <laughs> uh, yeah well, yeah exactly was kind of the general response uh, but you know uh transportation minister carol Ma carolyn Marooney says i guess that those pilots went well that the they're adding a couple more highways to it um and that those have been chosen because it's safer to go fast there um and that they consulted and it, it should be fine i mean i think most motorists uh, in Ontario that drive on the 400 series highways know that uh, 100 kilometers an hour tends to be uh, more of a recommendation than a limit anyway. Yeah. So um, I guess it remains to be seen whether the 110 means people speed up uh, even more or whether we're, uh, you know, drivers are, are now going the, the, <laughs> the real speed limit as opposed to... Well, that's, that's been the past experience, though, hasn't it, Allison? I mean, whatever the speed limit is, add 10 to it, and, which is what people send to, you know, I can get away with this. So, so really what they're saying is it's going to be 120 on those highways. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that rolls out. I got to ask you about a couple of other things, because, I mean, like you say, these are kind of a feel-good measures. And one of the ones that they, they have addressed here is, of course, the soaring price of housing. And I know they had the task force that Tim Hudak and others were on a while ago, and they came up with some recommendations. But uh, they've announced uh, yesterday that they're also cracking down even further now on foreign real estate speculation uh, by increasing uh, the uh, the speculation, the tax that's going to be charged, the non-resident speculation tax is going to go up to 20%. I'm talking to an awful lot of people in the real estate industry over the last little while they seem to think this is a Toronto problem. And why are you putting a province-wide, uh, you know, increase like this on that, that actually may not do much good to, to what, may not even do much good in Toronto? What, what's the thinking behind this? Um, I think it's an easy thing for them to do, to be honest. I mean, the tax is already in place. It's at 15% uh, in the greater Golden Horseshoe. Um, so, you know, it's really just kind of tweaking around the edges, making it kind of a simple program change for the government uh they announced it yesterday it's in effect today so if you're a foreign national trying to buy a condo in toronto today all of a sudden that tax is already uh going to be applied at the new rate so for that reason you know i i i don't personally think it's going to make a massive difference um in you know housing prices uh it, it did when the when the liberals first rolled it out i think back in 2017 it kind of tamped down things for a bit 
But I think, I think, you know, we know that the people buying homes in Ontario are mostly, you know, Ontario based investors that want a second home, a third home, uh, rent, want to flip a home or, you know, people that just want to live in the house that, that really is the vast majority of sales um, are, are those two categories, especially the first. Um, so I think this might do a little. It's not a terrible idea. There doesn't seem to be a lot of opposition to it. It makes the PCs look decisive, right? We're doing this right now. <laughs> yeah. um, and they also, in that announcement, uh, which I, is a bit interesting, is they they spoke about a, the vacant home tax, which is something yeah. that um, under municipal law, uh, towns and cities are already allowed to apply. The city of Toronto actually passed uh, its own uh, vacant home tax uh, a few months ago. It's going to come into effect soon. So that means if you own a house and you're not renting it out, uh, you're going to have to pay a levy on that. British Columbia, uh, a few years ago, instituted a province, a wide one. Or actually, you know what? It wasn't province wide. It was it was targeted. But um, it, the province did it. So mm -hmm. the PCs have never really talked about this vacant home tax before. And, and yesterday in his announcement, um, the finance minister kind of gave a nod to it, said he, he's going to set up ways for municipalities to start you know, speaking with each other, trying to find best practices and, and see if they maybe encourage them to go that path if they want to. So that is, that's a big difference in rhetoric for the PCs. But again, you know, stuff on the municipal level works slow. A lot depends on how those taxes are implemented. So the PCs are getting, I guess, a little more creative than they have been. But it really remains to be seen if that's going to damp down on um, what's really going on in the housing market. I got a little more than a minute left, but I got to ask you this because this is a, a, something that just came up today. It puts a story that, that that you and others have been covering for quite some time. We know traditionally when a government takes over, of course, they have uh, mandate letters. I know if you become Minister of Housing, for instance, you get a mandate letter from the Premier saying, this is what I want you to do. This is your agenda. They have not published these. They will not make them public. There have been a number of uh, folks in the Queen's Park uh, Bureau that are saying we need to see these. And traditionally, every government, federal or provincial, released these letters. The Ford government has refused right from the time that they were elected, almost four years ago now. Now they're going to the Supreme Court to try to protect that. What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, so those are letters that were written and sent to ministers back in the summer of 2018, so right after Doug Ford was first elected. And they've been fighting to keep them under wraps ever since. You know, I think there's a lot of ways we can think about it. You know, the longer they drag it through the courts, the less likely they're, you know, they're kind of kicking it down the can. You know, I think the government was, it was really green and really fresh back in 2018. Um, you know, it had a bunch of people in leadership roles in Premier Ford's office that aren't there anymore. And it's possible these letters don't look great. Um, you know, Ford was a... Well, what are they, you know, get, was, what are they hiding? That's the question. Yeah. I mean, I think by now we'd know if there was anything, you know, anything in there that they said they were going to do that, you know, seemed pretty out there. We would know that they hadn't done it by now, right? You know, the secrets, we've seen them govern for four years. So we have an idea of what their plans were. But I think it is possible there's some language in there that that wouldn't look good on the government especially not right before an election um but yeah, we have to remember mandate letters you know kathleen Wynne was the first premier to ever introduce them this is it's a pretty new tradition to make these public so th the ford government really is kind of going back to the days of early kathleen Wynne or, or delta mcginty by by not publishing them it's not the most long-standing tradition we have here well, it's going to be interesting, and I, I know we're just about out of time, but your last point there I think is, the, is very, very relevant here. By going to the Supreme Court, all they're really doing is kicking this issue down the street, and they're hoping that there's no decision going to be made, and there probably won't be now uh, before the June election, which I guess would suit them just fine. And I know it's a story that you've been following, and uh, we look for your further reporting on this. Always a pleasure to have you on the program, Allison. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. And yes, I do want to read those letters if I get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Keep us posted, won't you? Allison Smith, founder of Queen's Park Today. Thanks again, Allison. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tragic pictures. Well, we're seeing those every day now of uh, what's going on in Ukraine with the shellings and the, the deaths and uh, some it's very touching uh, reporting that's been done. We've had a number of those people that have been over here, of course, uh, and uh, have 
made the trek over to Ukraine to actually get a first-hand look at this. Uh, Global's Jeff Semple, of course, has been on the program, and Brian J. Karam, who I just got back, but apparently is going back there. We do know this much. The peace talks that were going on in Turkey, of course, between Ukraine and Russia, uh, have taken a pause. They're not meeting today. They've both gone back to their respective uh, leaders, I guess, to get an update on where they should be going forward on this. But yesterday, rather interestingly, uh, Russia is claiming its military will drastically reduce its presence around Ukraine's capital of Kiev which has been increasingly hit by shelling and bombing, of course, in recent days. Reporter uh, M. Window says that the Biden administration is expressing a, a great deal of skepticism about the Russian announcement. Overnight, new explosions rocking the suburbs of Kyiv long after Russia pledged to scale back offensive operations in parts of Ukraine, including the capital. After Wednesday's peace talks, Russia said it will cut back military activity in the direction of Kyiv and the northern city of Cherniev to increase mutual trust. But hours later, more explosions. The State Department believes Russia's plan to cut back is not a withdrawal plan, but rather a repositioning. So where are we standing on this? And uh, I suppose the other question that a lot of people have been asking uh, is, can you trust what the Russians are saying? Joining us to try to sift through all this, please to welcome back to the program, Thomas Hughes. Uh, Thomas, of course, is a postdoctoral fellow with the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University. Uh, Thomas, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you back here today. No problem at all. Delighted to be with you again. Interesting developments. It, it is really. And, and I guess I'll go right to the bottom line question that uh, Antony Blinken uh, mentioned yesterday. He says, I don't think we can trust the Russians, no matter what they're saying. I, I, is, is that the common feeling these days, just simply because of what's gone on? I think one of the, the aspects of this NATO-Russian relationship uh, that's emerged um, from the, the, the Cold War and during the Cold War is this understanding and idea that we do want to, to try and reach a position where we can trust each other. However, as it stands, it's really about trying to work out what it is we need to see in order to believe what the other side is saying. Uh, so I think I don't want to entirely go down the line of the, the trust but verify concept, but essentially that is what we're looking at here. So I think that there is quite obviously a real indication that certain numbers of Russian troops are moving away from their positions around Kyiv. Uh, the rationale for that and the implications of that, I think, are where Blinken's comments really come into, into effect. So I think we need to be very, very careful about what we understand to actually be the function of this withdrawal of some troops and understand what it actually does on the ground in terms of the fighting. As, as the previous correspondent said, that the, the attacks on Kyiv have continued and just because troops are no longer perhaps uh, looking to uh, enter the city uh, and, and, and take the city as a, as a ground force does not mean that the city is now safe and the population in that city uh, are safe either. And, and this is, of course, as Blinken reminded us yesterday, this is the same Vladimir Putin that said about six weeks ago, I'm not going to invade Ukraine. I want to see the, a diplomatic solution to this. And bingo, about 24 hours later, uh, they were off and, and, and running when this thing happened. So it's, there's a track record there. So I can understand that sort of skepticism. But at the same time, I guess, though, Thomas, I mean, this, the people in Ukraine are holding up for some sort of sign that, you know, maybe there's an, an end in sight. And, you know, there seem to be some positive uh, indicators from both mm. sides, really, during these peace talks uh, that maybe they could find some common ground. And, and I guess goal one here is a ceasefire, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's fair to say from, from every reasonable person's perspective, we, we want to see the end to, to killing uh, in Ukraine. We want to see the end to death. As you said, some of the, the pictures and the videos that are coming out are, are just heartbreaking um, from the, the human casualties and also from the, the material destruction. And looking at the, the videos from Mariupol, uh, it's it's awful. And so, yes, of course, we really do want to see that, that ceasefire, the, the end to um, the battle. And one of the things that I think is, is really interesting is um, that that Russian statement about creating these conditions for further negotiations, they're playing on that as well. They are making it in some ways uh, difficult um, to, to not engage more fulsomely in the negotiations. They're trying to sort of turn that informational table round, if you like, to, to, to make it look like Russia are the ones who are 
de-escalating this and are open to discussion, again, I think we have to, to question that very carefully uh, and think also just about what Russia's intent is here. And I think perhaps what we're seeing is um, not a change fundamentally in what Russia wants out of Ukraine. I think that's a really dangerous thing to do is to, to say, okay, Russia has now limited its aims in the medium to long term. And that that we have not seen any indication of that uh, for the moment. But there's this possible indication that, that Russia is thinking about what uh, a negotiated settlement looks like in the short term. Again, that is a huge challenge for Zelensky and for the West. And I think um, from a personal perspective, um, the West really has to, to hold fast here uh, and hold on because a negotiated settlement at this point is almost certainly going to require Require Ukraine to give up some of its territory, or at the very least, acknowledge Crimea uh, as Russian, and that, of course, is is a real loss for Ukraine. I mean, fundamentally, that that is giving away some of the country that they believed was part of Ukraine, and they continue to believe is part of Ukraine. So, the negotiated settlement, um, of course, we do want to see the, the the end to the fighting, but how we balance that uh, against what Ukrainian territory looks like, what Ukrainian alliances look like, whether they're, they're part of the EU, and whether we have, as the discussion came through about security guarantees for Ukraine um, without being part of NATO, that's all very difficult for, for Ukraine and Zelensky to accept, I think. And so they are going to have to um, think very, very carefully uh, about what that negotiation looks like, if it requires them to give up anything. But Zelensky's already talked about that, though, hasn't he, Thomas? I mean, it seems, uh, from what we've heard anyway, that they're willing to declare themselves as a neutral country. They seem, uh, at this stage anyway, some of the indications we got is that they were willing to forego their their, their application to be a, a NATO member. Mm. Uh, some are suggesting they're giving up way too much in a situation like that. And, and we, as you say, the elephant in the room that nobody seems to want to talk about is how much land are they going to have to cede to the Russians? Yeah, absolutely. And even if they don't actually sort of de jure uh, cede the the Donbass region Donetsk and Luhansk uh, to Russia I think it's it's fairly um, straightforward to say that is going to be um, very very much in the Russian sphere of influence so uh, even that region becomes a, a difficult position uh, again that that quote from from the the Russians yesterday about creating the, the position for negotiation it has, for, for me at least, a slightly sinister undertone as well, because when we talk about uh, the, the the suggestion that Zelensky made, as, as you, you touched on there, that actually they might be giving up too much, we know with negotiations that, that they are a function of the balance of power at any particular point in time. So if Mariupol does fall, if Russia can consolidate its positions in the Hansk and Donetsk, uh, that gives them much more leverage uh, to be able to require Ukraine to, to make those sorts of concessions uh, around neutrality. And it's important as well, again, coming back to that point about, about optics, it is important for Zelensky to demonstrate uh, a certain degree of willingness to talk in a situation where, I, frankly, if I was in his position, I would be deeply disinclined to, to have mm -hmm. conversations um, with Russia. Well, because there seems to be a, a fine line here between uh, a negotiated peace, I'll put that in my air quotations mm. here, Thomas, uh, yeah, sure. in terms of surrender. And and that's how some mm. people are looking at this right now, as if, uh, you know, Ukraine's going to lose no matter what. Absolutely. Um, and that that is a very, very difficult line to walk. And that's what I mean, that I think the West really has to hold fast here. Um, we've committed to supporting Ukraine, uh, in my opinion, entirely rightly. And that is going to cost us, frankly, of course, not uh, nearly as much as it is the conflict is costing Ukraine. But, but we have to maintain a position of supporting Ukraine and ensuring that if and when Zelensky is, is prepared to make that um, negotiated deal with Russia, whatever that looks like, that we can frame this as as being a position that Ukraine is comfortable with, at least in the short term. And the other reality, of course, again, as, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, Ukraine is going to continue to be very concerned about the potential that Russia comes back again in the medium to long term. As you suggested, we, we heard from Russia that there was no chance of an invasion of Ukraine, that that was Western hyperbole. Uh, and Obviously, that, that was um, not entirely correct. So 
Ukraine is going to have to uh, have some form of agreement, uh, I would imagine, um, that they can be comfortable that they are going to be supported again in the event of a Russian invasion. I suspect that what Zelensky is going to be looking for is is uh, an, an acknowledgement that NATO would not simply be giving weapons to Ukraine if this occurred again. Even if it's not part of NATO, I imagine that, that Ukraine would want to be in a position where they would have functional support uh, from NATO members. Uh, and that, of course, creates uh, uh, another challenge for NATO in, in understanding how it's part of that negotiating uh, conversation as well. Well, and I'm, I'm guessing there's got to be some, uh, I, I think, some concern by NATO itself, I guess, and, and the Western mm-hmm. world. I mean, you, you mentioned, you used a phrase that we haven't used in, in decades, Thomas, and that's Cold War. We're, we're back to that now. Uh, it's it's 1960s all over again right now. You know this this is the Putin trying to establish that Iron Curtain. You know that they talked about uh, the the days of Gladnos, I guess, between Gorbachev and Reagan. Those appear to be long gone at this stage. Yeah, it's very difficult. I think the one thing we do have to be really careful about um, is that we don't simply then take the box file off the shelf, which says how to win the Cold War, and expect that that is going to uh, work again this time, that the same patterns are going to emerge. So I think you're absolutely right that it is useful for us to look back at the Cold War. It's really important that we talk to historians uh, of the Cold War and people who were involved in those discussions to understand the dynamics of it. But we also need to very much make sure that we understand that this is also not the Cold War now. This is a, a, a different Russia. This is a different Europe. This is a slightly different NATO as well. So, again, it's that fine line that you talked about before, which I think is is absolutely right. It's that fine line of, of understanding, OK, what lessons have we got from the 1960s? Um, the 1970s, uh, and where can we apply them today? And where is this situation very different now? I've got a couple of minutes left. Let's go to the other side of the fence, if we could, for just a second. We've talked about the pressure on NATO and on Ukraine, mm-hmm. certainly. Uh, is there any urgency on the Russian side to try to find some sort of a deal? I mean, I, 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 we know that this, this simply by population and by size, they can just keep mm-hmm. throwing troops out there. But their losses have been significant, uh, much greater than I'm sure the Russians ever anticipated. And mm-hmm. they're not making the kind of progress in Ukraine that they thought they were going to right now. Is is, is there a period where Putin just says, uh, we got to find plan B here or to, to do something to try to save face? We, I think you used the term the last time we talked about an exit ramp. Is he, is he yeah. looking for one? It's very, very difficult to know, of course. And one of the fascinating aspects of this is we simply don't know how much that Putin knows about the situation on the ground. And when we think about the conflict from from the start, there was seemingly an understanding or an expectation within Russia, as you suggested, that there would be this rapid attack that would take Kyiv very quickly. Ukraine would crumple, and that was that was incorrect. We don't know what lessons Russia, the Russian intelligence services and military have really fundamentally taken from this now. However, I do think the fact that, that Russia is talking uh, about the potential for negotiation um, alongside continuing to try and shape the terms of that negotiation through attacks on, on Kyiv and, and continued offensive elsewhere in, in Ukraine. And I think that's really important to, to discuss this idea that, um, OK, there might be moving troops away from Kyiv, it certainly does not mean that the other areas of conflict uh, have stopped. My personal impression is that it, it would not surprise me if we saw Russia negotiate some form of cessation of hostilities that may hold for a few years even. I don't think it would be sensible for us to expect that uh, the cessation of hostilities in Ukraine, whether it comes in the next few months or if it comes in the next few months, marks the end of uh, the conflict for Ukraine, which is going to be a much longer term, longer term battle, unless there's radical political shift in, in Russia. And frankly, I can't see that happening in the near future. Is there a chance of, of negotiating some sort of an agreement between those two sides, between Russia and Ukraine? Or are we going to have to have a, an intermediary, somebody who, who can actually broker the, uh, some sort of a deal and discussion like that? It's a, 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 The closer we get to the edge there, I guess, I, I'm getting the sense that both sides are a little tentative about jumping in because yeah. of what might happen. Absolutely. And it, it's a great question about the, the intermediary. And we've seen in, in lots of the research around um, conflict resolution that the significance of an intermediary it's it's hugely important to to have that it seems and the challenge of course that we have here is who is going to be that intermediary 
who is there that, that both sides can trust uh, to maintain uh, a neutral position and to encourage the conversation in good faith. Is that going to be Turkey? Potentially, but of course, Turkey is a, a NATO member. Is that going to be China? Well, I, I can't imagine that, that Ukraine is going to be wild about China performing that particular role. So I think it, having some form of intermediary, uh, as you suggest, is a really great idea. Um, and I think it would be incredibly useful for us to discuss Uh, or for, for Ukraine and Russia to discuss who that may be. Of course, ultimately, this is going to have to be a, a Ukraine-Russia solution. The intermediary is not going to be able, I would imagine in this context, to um, provide security guarantees uh, and to suggest that it would be policing any agreement. And of course, that's what we've seen uh, happening at the start of this conflict as well. We had certain security uh, agreements um, that simply did not seem to hold. Uh, when when the crunch came. So I, I keep hoping that there is a negotiated settlement here. Um, I really want to see the end of this. But I think, again, it's a really important point to remember is that we haven't actually been fighting this war for very long. I mean, it feels like an awful long time, but uh -huh. we're talking about the, the actual military conflict component of this we're only 30 plus days in and we don't want to think about the concept that this may run for years and we of course hope that it doesn't but I, but i think it would be naive to suggest or to expect that we might be able to see a negotiated settlement uh, in the short term wars are very uncertain and they keep going and they're very very destructive um, we aren't reaching anywhere near an end stage of this conflict just yet I got about a minute left here, but I got to throw something out. Just as you were uh, speaking there, I, just, I named just a, what about France? I know they're a NATO member, certainly, but uh, mm -hmm. Macron seems to have some sort of a relationship with Vladimir Putin, although acrimonious an awful lot of the time. I get that, but yeah. you, you know, you're never going to find a perfect, uh, you know, uh, no. neutral individual here. But I'm just wondering if that's an option. Yeah, if they can shout at each other down the length of the 40-meter table that it was sat at, maybe throw some paper aeroplanes towards each other. Um, yeah, I, France is a really interesting option as well. I mean, France and Russia's relationship historically is a really, really interesting area of political and historical research um, that, that's well worth looking at if you, if you have time. I would love to see France uh, stepping in there. And that would also, of course, provide a really interesting bridge to, to NATO uh, through that conversation. Again, of course, you do have a challenge that um, would Russia actually accept France as, yeah. as that um, intermediary? What would that mean for France sending military equipment to Ukraine? Uh, and if France you know, pulls away from material support for Ukraine because it's acting as an intermediary, That makes uh, a little bit more pressure on uh, other allies to provide and, and that support that, that France was was providing it, uh, previously. So I, I certainly think there is room for Macron. And it's great to see Macron uh, making the efforts that he has done. I think he's another statesman who's really performed very well, mm -hmm. uh, if Absolutely. you like, in a difficult scenario. He has. Uh, well, that, uh, I guess, is going to be part of our next conversation. Uh, Tom, oh, it's always so. a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Really enjoyed Not our conversation. Great today. to speak to you. Bye for now. Take care. Thomas Hughes, of uh, course, from uh, Queen's University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Week tomorrow is uh, Federal Budget Day. Uh, Christy Freeland, who is the uh, Deputy Prime Minister, of course, and the Finance Minister, uh, made the announcement uh, in the Commons. And there's a lot of uh, speculation and anticipation, frankly, about this. This is really the first budget Uh, that this government has introduced since the uh, federal election uh, late last year. Uh, there was a, an economic update back in December, but uh, even some of the numbers that they talked about then have probably been uh, skewed because of what's gone on in the last little while. Uh, I know that, for instance, they said back in those days, uh, that was December, which is not that long ago, they thought that by the end of this year, 2022, that inflation would be back down around 2% or so. Uh, we're nowhere near that right now. We've got a long way to go to make this happen. Uh, but with the uh, budget being released, uh, it's expected to focus on spurring economic growth. I guess most budgets are these days. But Finance Minister Christian Freeland told the House of Commons that the government's new fiscal plan will be tabled at 4 o'clock next Thursday. Here's the Deputy PM. Our government was re-elected on a commitment to grow our economy, make life more affordable, and to continue building a Canada where nobody gets left behind. 
That is exactly what we are doing, and that is what we're going to continue to do in the budget that I will present to this House on April 7th, 2022. So, a lot of questions here, certainly about what's going to be happening, what's going to be included in this. And, and frankly, I guess some concern and uh, some skepticism and maybe even some speculation about who's going to be involved in, in writing this document. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Moshe Lander, who is a senior economist lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, always a pleasure. I'm a busy day today. Appreciate you jumping on with us. Hey, no worries. Let me ask you right off the top, and it's kind of a political uh, flavor to this, but because uh, we'll get into some hard and fast numbers in a second. But with the deal that uh, the NDP and the Liberals have announced, uh, this uh, basically, you know, that, yeah, we'll try to get along as much as we can and support, well, in this case, budgets. How much in- input do you figure that, that the NDP are going to have in the preparation of this budget and, and, and some of the fine-tuning that's going to go on with it? There's certainly going to be a factor in the budget. They they have basically said that we'll keep you in power till 2025. When you need funds, we'll make sure that you get our approval. But that's not just a gift to avoid an election. That's We have some pet projects that we want to make sure are included. So wherever there's an overlap or there's not a major sacrifice that the Liberals are going to have to make, they're probably going to bow to whatever the NDP asks for. Well, and I guess the two that jump out, of course, you know, they want to increase farmer care and, and the dental plan, uh, two things that Jagmeet Singh talked about. And and I, they're probably going to be there. Uh, but, you know, that, now we're getting down to a matter of dollars. But I just wonder, in a process like that, does the government say, OK, well, those are the two things you asked for. They're there. But, you know, just let us do what we want to with the rest of this. I don't think they're going to get off the hook that easily, are they? No. And, you know, whenever you have these these programs, uh, especially when they come with big dollar amounts, the devil's always in the details. So when you get up in the budget and you say we're going to have X billion dollars allocated to a pharmacare plan, uh, fantastic. That That's not that you've committed yourself to that. It's merely a matter of in the coming year, we're going to try and get that money and unveil some sort of plan. But, it, it, you know, it's almost like saying that you're going to allocate $25,000 towards a bathroom repair or uh, renovation, right? What that $25,000 is going to get you, is that going to be gold leaf sinks or is that going to be matching his and her toilets? You know, the devil's in the details. And so, uh, it, it, you know, I, I think that the budget is going to be thin on that stuff uh, and it's just going to be a bunch of glossy numbers. Uh, the, the coming year is going to be how they actually hammer this stuff out in committee. To your point, I mean, well, even the commitment that the uh, the government has made towards military spending and increasing that. I mean, Minister Anand's talked about this, Minister Jolie, the Prime Minister's talked about this. But, you know, we had Jagmeet Singh on the program uh, the other day, and he simply said, that 2% thing, no, not happening. That's uh, he, aspirational, I think, was the, the phrase that he used for that. So there's going to have to be some negotiation about that, I would think. For sure. And the, the complicating factor, of course, is that Canada has long neglected the NATO suggested guidelines of 2% of GDP on defense spending. Uh, the fact is that Canada was able to neglect it for the most part because they were active participants in Afghanistan and in other conflicts and in peacekeeping. And so their NATO neglect was kind of looked the other way. Uh, But now that you have the Russia-Ukraine situation, there's kind of this realization that, hey, NATO maybe still does matter and Canada's not pulling its weight. So even if they want to spend the 2% um, and and overlook Jasmine Singh's comments, uh, the issue is where do you spend that money? If you're just going to spend money on replicating things that the Americans or the European partners are already doing, that's money wasted. So it's where do you find that spending yeah, and we saw that uh, with with some of the debates that went on in past NATO meetings, didn't we? Uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump, of course, when he was the president, uh, was was quite adamant about Canada having to step up in situations like that. And uh, I guess a lot of the time it was easy to dismiss that and say, well, it's Donald Trump. What do you expect? You know, that's the kind of bluster. But the other NATO members, including the, the Secretary General, are starting to apply some pressure to Canada uh, at this stage, too. So you got to figure that, you know, that they're going to have to respond in, in some way. We are, I think we've lost a connection. Sorry, with most sorry of I'm here. Oh, there you are. Okay, you're back. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Sorry, my ear just somehow muted my phone. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that um, the the NDP might have an objection to two percent. Uh, we're going to try to hook up again with the motion in just a couple of seconds here. We seem to be having some technical difficulties, and uh, we'll fire through those and try to get that fixed up for you in just a couple of seconds here. Speculating really about what's going to be happening, and and I guess to you know to be fair about this 
the government didn't actually say uh, they were going to meet that two percent. Uh, that you know, Minister Anand and others uh, said that it was going to be increased spending. So we, you know, we may not even see uh, a move towards that. I think we're at one point three nine percent of GDP right now. And uh, even Peter McKay, who was a former defense minister, uh, stated over the weekend that it would be very, very difficult to go from 1.39 up to 2%. Probably not practical. So you would imagine uh, that this is going to be a staged and incremental increase if, in fact, they still have that goal of 2%. Yeah, to you don't want to go up to 2% just because 2% is a number, right? To find uh, those millions of dollars and projects uh, the, the fact is that it could actually, uh, to tie it to a different topic, it could be inflationary, right? If you yeah. start throwing uh, defense dollars around, there's only a limited number of defense contractors out there that can meet what Canada is going to be looking for anyway. And so if you throw it to them all at once, it's just going to start pushing prices higher still, and, and you're going to get less bang for your buck. So it's going to have to be something that's drip fed over years to, to get up to that level. But there has to be a commitment to doing it starting now. Marshall, let me ask you about one of the other things that I know they've talked about, and that's a pandemic preparation. And uh, uh, probably very topical right now because we're starting to hear numbers uh, here in Ontario and in Quebec that the the numbers of this new variant are starting to increase, and, and it's it's becoming a bit of a problem. The Ontario government released a, a, what they call a plan yesterday for going forward on this, and it was really a, a kind of a, a best, you know, greatest hits of some of the stuff they've already done. They're going to increase this, we're going to hire more doctors, etc., is it incumbent upon the federal government to come back to us and say, we're never going to let this happen again, and here's how much money we're going to put towards this? Yeah, you know, to say that we're never going to let this happen again is not something that's within the government's control, right? And and that's part of the problem is that even though we've been hearing for years and years that a pandemic could come and this is what it could look like, the, the fact is that, you know, you can only be prepared for when it comes. You can't stop it from happening. And so the other complicating factor, of course, is that health primarily is a provincial concern. It's not a federal yeah. concern. And so other than the federal government promising dollars to the provinces, I don't think that the federal government is now going to start overriding the idea that it's a provincial issue. So there, there's really a limited amount they can do other than kind of be the cheerleader from the sidelines saying, we have money at the ready, uh, or we're going to try and help the provinces better coordinate with each other. We saw during the, the last two years, uh, border control issues was a, a major issue in terms of importing people that were bringing the pandemic with them into this country. Um, you know, that that's the type of thing that the federal government can do, but but they have a limited capacity to do anything other than just kind of cheer from the sidelines. I, I guess one of the things that they do have some sway over, though, is um, the commitment that the, both the prime minister and, and other cabinet members made a few months ago uh, to basically reconstitute the pharmaceutical industry in this country, which has really kind of fallen by the wayside. And it's, it's like you and I have talked about this before. The pandemic really just shone the light on an awful lot of weaknesses we had uh, in our economy and so many others, and it probably exacerbated them to a certain extent. And, and I guess what people are going to be looking for in that regard is, okay, you made the commitment, uh, you know, there's one pharmaceutical plant in Montreal that they wanted to, to rejuvenate, another one in Toronto. And, and uh, they're looking for that so that we don't get caught short and where we have to start going to other countries like Germany for supply. And for, that would think, I would think is an area where they can make some progress if, if, in fact, they have the financial wherewithal to do it. They can. And in those types of situations, they they have the leverage of scale. And in a lot of these types of programs, that's what you need to make them effective, right? That a pharmaceutical care plan works a lot better if you have, say, a thousand people involved in the plan than a hundred people involved. So by the same logic, 10,000 is better than a thousand, a million is better than 10,000. And so 40 million Canadians is clearly going to be a better system than at a provincial level. And so it's one of those cases where you know, the provinces might be unwilling to give up their their control over that plan. But the federal government can say, listen, the whole point of this is to make these things affordable. And we're willing to pick up the tab on this if you just work with us and let us exploit those economies of scale. So, uh, you know, a dental plan, child care plan, pharmaceutical plan, these can all be things that the federal government can do. Uh, the provinces just have to agree to it and, and kind of back away and, and let the, the economies of scale do their trick. 
And, and I suppose variations on that theme with the, the fact that, uh, the, you know, the National Child Care Program is now a reality. Ontario just signing on uh, the other day. And, and that is kind of a collaboration. We don't see much of that when it comes to healthcare delivery these days, do we? No, and it's it's something that's slowly disappearing from Canada in general, right? The idea yeah. of the premier's meetings and, you know, the prime minister is the first among equals that, uh, you, you know, is really just kind of trying to knock heads together. Even that's kind of a uh, an antiquated and quaint sort of idea for those of a certain age, right? So, uh, you know, politics is a lot more regional now and it's it's a lot more divisive uh so uh, you know I, I i think that there's maybe some advantage that at least two of the three main federal parties are at least in agreement that they want to work together for the next four years uh that might allow some of these things to maybe work their way through uh where if it's just the liberal standing alone as a minority that probably have no chance at a lot of these Moshe, one of the words that um, Minister Freeland used an awful lot as she was talking about this was affordability. Uh, and I guess that's a two-pronged area here, affordability for the government. In other words, how can they pay for this stuff? But affordability for us, you know, when they did the, their economic update in December, I guess it was, she predicted at that stage that uh, that by the end of 2022, inflation was probably going to be back to maybe just a little bit over 2%. Well, it's nowhere near that right now. Uh, and I don't know if that's even attainable in the, the the second half of this year, the way things have been going recently. What, if anything, I mean, this is a global problem, not just a Canadian problem, but what, what can a federal government do to do something like this? I mean, everything costs more right now, uh, you know, from gasoline to granola. I mean, just about everything because of supply chain issues, but a lot of it is inflation. Yeah, so the, the federal government doesn't have any real control over inflation, right? That's the responsibility of the Bank of Canada. And even last yeah. year, there was a renewed mandate for the Bank of Canada to maintain its degree of independence that it has right now. So, you know, the, the only things that the federal government can do at this point is to try and not be a contributor to inflation within the economy. And so the easiest way to do that is to spend as little as possible, right? The catch, of course, is that coming off of a pandemic and having exploited the various weaknesses within the economy, saying to a government right now, you need to slash spending, is probably going to be very difficult for them. Notwithstanding the programs that we talked about, just the idea of the government saying at this point, yeah, you know, we're going to sit out the next couple of years uh, and kind of pare things back. It's it's good economics, but it's not the type of thing that people want to hear at this point when everybody has two years of grievances that they've built up. So it's going to be difficult for them to try and find a way to not be a contributor to that story. And it's really going to be, again, the devil in the details of trying to time how you roll out these various programs in a way that is not part of the problem. Are Canadian people ready for austerity right now? I, I mean, you know, uh, we all want lower taxes. I'm sure that that's always going to be, you know, the number one issue when it comes to budget time. You know, we don't want to pay as much as we paid. But at the same time, uh, we've learned to lean on the government an awful lot during the last two years because of the pandemic. We want that support program. We need this. Uh, you know, we kind of rely on them maybe a lot more uh, than we used to. Is uh, uh, preaching about small government now and, 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 as you say, austerity, is that something that the Canadians can accept at this stage? No. No, but uh, you know what? I, I think we'll at least get a little bit of a vision of it uh, when Ontario and Quebec go to the polls this year, right? So, yeah. you know, th that's going to make up about half of the Canadian population right there is going to have a say as to whether they want uh, more government or less. But I, I think in general, you know, we saw in the federal election that it was just more of the same. And, um, you know, even the Conservatives were not being their usual Conservative self in, in preaching minimal government. So, I, I think Canada in general, you're right, has, has probably shifted a little more towards nanny state type responses to uh, all of the ills in society, right? Whether it's um, inflation, whether it was the, the pandemic itself, whether it was, uh, you know, we got a taste of CERB payments and the surfacing of universal basic income talk. Uh, there's a whole bunch where we're now starting to look to the government and saying, you are the solution to all of our problems. And, you know, I, I think if the government's going to say that, we want to start cutting back because it's good for the economy. I don't even know that people would necessarily accept that logic. Well, because we've been told just the opposite, haven't we, for the last two years? Look, at, uh, you know, deficits be damned. We've got to put these programs out there, the CERB and all these other things. And, and we kind of accepted that by and large, didn't we? I mean, there were still some voices that said, no, this is going to kill us down the road. And a number of economists said, well, you know, you're going to pay a price for this down the road. And, and that's happening. We see that happening already. But at the same time, uh, you know, for the last two years, we've been saying, well, don't worry about that. We'll worry about that we're down the road. Uh, we're um, getting down the road now, aren't we? Where at some point, I guess th those voices are going to get louder. We are going to be concerned about deficits and, and certainly the national debt. 
Yeah. And, and I think that part of the, the recent spending binge was also very short term in nature. If, if I'm going to look at the government to spend money and I'm going to look for them to try and better my life through their spending, what I would look at is can they spend on things that I couldn't spend on myself? So if they want to spend on infrastructure development, if they want to spend on rolling out uh, 5G networks, if they want to look at liberalizing energy markets so that alternate fuels can come on board and lower our utility bills and things like that. I can't do that. You can't do that. And even if you and I work together, we can't do that. So that's where you want the government to come out. The last two years, though, has not been long-term vision. It's been short-term survival. And so when you're just handing people checks in the mail saying, this will get you to the next check that arrives in the mail, uh, the fact is that even if the government wants to continue spending, they, they need to try and change the Canadian mindset that, look, we're not just trying to help you get from paycheck to paycheck. We're trying to create an infrastructure that will allow every person to thrive based on their skills. If you're lacking the skills, we'll help you with the training and development of those skills. But after that, you got to take care of yourself and you got to move yourself forward. It's economically efficient. It boosts the long-term growth of this economy. But it's, it's not that short-termism of just getting from here to tomorrow. They're going to have a little more money than they thought they were probably going to have last December, uh, and that's because gasoline prices have spiked. And, and as we've talked about, you know, the, the 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 tax portion of that, of course, is based on the price. It's it's a percentage of the price of gas, and we've seen this happen in the past, where you know they'll come back and uh, whether it's going to be Christia Freeland or Peter Bethlenfalvy here in Ontario, uh, and say, you know, well, look at how well we've managed the economy. This we thought this was going to be the deficit, and it's a the, there's going to be some cash here, but. There's a lot of hands out there right now, especially because this liberal NDP deal. Does that simply go into the, the kitty that's going to pay for some of these programs or, or do they try to, to bring that back in and look at something like debt reduction and, and trying to reduce the deficit? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the great shell game that, that all governments yeah. play, right, is that when the money comes in, they pat themselves on the back and say what great stewards they were of the economy. You're right that the extra revenue that's coming in, it's not just from gasoline, it's from that overall inflation that's a bad thing for us is actually a good thing for government coffers. When you consider that the GST, PST, HST, it, it's all a percentage of price. So when prices start rising rapidly, uh, money starts coming in rapidly. But beyond that, it's as the economy starts to return to something looking like normal. We, we talked last month about uh, unemployment being at pre-pandemic levels, employment being at pre-pandemic levels, that means that there's extra money coming in because people are returning to work. So there's income tax that's being generated too. The, the fact is that if the government is too busy patting itself on the back or at least trying to preen for the camera saying, look at what we did, you didn't do anything. And so that's not going to deal with long-term issues like deficits and debts. And so I, I don't really see that that's going to be something that's discussed in this budget because to have a vision for how you're going to bring this deficit down structurally, not just because of good luck, uh, how you're going to bring that debt back down from hundreds of billions of dollars of spending, that does require some level of austerity. And because they're not really ready to discuss that with Canadians, it's just going to be more, again, a little bit of short-term patting on the back saying, uh, look at what we accomplished in the last six months, and then let's figure out where we're going to allocate those funds. Moshe, always a pleasure, especially in these days. As you mentioned, we've got a federal budget coming up. We've got an Ontario budget coming up and elections in both provinces. Uh, these are interesting times to be sure. We always appreciate your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this. Anytime. Take care. Moshe Lander, of course, Senior Economist Lecturer at Concordia University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.